Greetings and salutations, friends, and welcome back to the arcade. We are your video game podcast here with you for the last time in the month of August. How is it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who is so glad to be back with you once again. Means we are still all walking this side of the earth, as opposed to the underside. No one can hear us down there. That's fine. That's their problem, not your problem. You're here listening to us. You made the right call. Yes, uh, in that weird intro, uh, <laughs> to go along with it, I'm the other voice on this program, as I always am. Uh, this week I'm Dennis, the man whose perplexment with original NES game difficulty continues. Mm, sounds like you're still playing more of Zelda 2. Yes, uh, so where we last stood, I think I was two castles in. Um, this time, I restarted because I'm playing it on the Nintendo Switch, using Nintendo Switch Online, using the Super NES whatever they want to call it, their Nintendo emulator that you can get on the Switch through your online Switch membership. Um, so they have those SP versions of games where, you know, it's a pre-save, or, you know, the game starts with certain conditions. I started it again using that game because I just decided it was way too damn hard. So their SP conditions were you start at level 8 for your attack, magic, and health, and... It's still really hard. <laughs> I'm on the final castle though. Um but yeah, I've died a lot. <laughs> but you've been able to make progress. Yeah, so I'm finding myself, you know, at this point it's straight up cheating, but I'm finding myself basically having to take a, a save state at the beginning of every room. And, you know, I get wrecked at the beginning of every room 200 times by all these cri- <laughs> The difficulty ramps up significantly as well towards the end of the game as well, which is bananas. There's enemies that only exist in the final castle that have had no, you know, previous versions of before. And it's just, it's a hard game. It's a super hard game. And I have no idea. I know I said this last week, but I have no idea how it was in, how its intended audience initially was children in the 1980s. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, really, uh, playing it at that time would have seemed absolutely merciless. Just completely, entirely, utterly merciless. Yeah. I mean, as a child who did play it at that time, I never made very far progress. I know a couple of times, you know, I tried playing it with a Game Genie, which was kind of fun, but you still get to a point where... Oh, even with unlimited health and lives and stuff, you can't actually save the game. And it takes a little bit longer than one sitting to beat the game. And, you know, with unlimited lives, at least, you know, that's still no good. Because you have to basically get a game over to be able to save it. Uh But also, <laughs> unlimited lives don't help you when you keep dying to the same enemy over and over again. Because you don't know the str- the strategy to beat him. So that's not great. It's not. Uh, so uh, uh, Zelda 2 simply back then would have been chalked up as, oh, this is just a hard game. Uh, whatever. I'll just put it to the side. Yeah. As there were a number of hard games back then that uh, my sense in looking back on it, I don't know, at least in, in my experience, I didn't feel a great sense of frustration. I Simply accepted the fact and resigned myself to the fact that I could only make it to the second stage, the third stage. Okay, well, no big whoop. Just not my thing. You know, I cited the example last week of Ninja Gaiden. Yeah. 
can only make it to the second or third stage. That's yes. too damn hard. Okay, well, it didn't feel that frustrating and overwhelming now, uh, or at the time, but I guess looking back on it, no, it's, you know, perhaps because of enemy design, level design, flaws in the design of the game in some aspects, or, or coding or whatnot, there were games that were just goddamn impossible. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, super, super, or at the very least, very hard, and you need to be super skilled to play them. Mm-hmm. I mean, as we've seen on the internet with, like, you know, the the elite class of speedrunners and stuff who, like, really, like, eliminate old games that, you know, you and I would have considered difficult with such ease, it's super admirable and crazy, but, yeah, I just can't help but think these games were marketed to children when they first came out, mm-hmm. like, 8 to 12 years old was their target demographic. And you don't really know what you're doing. Like, you don't know strategy or anything back no. then. Like, your, your, your whole way of playing video games is basically just, like, run at stuff and, like, mash the buttons until you run out of health. And that's pretty much it. I mean, like, you can start to learn levels and stuff. Like, for certain games you have to, but... And you gain some surprising muscle memory <laughs> for certain games that last the rest of your life, believe it or not. <laughs> like, I can still, you know, muscle memory my way through, I think, like, you know, some levels in Mario 2 and stuff like that. But still, like, it's like, oh, you always get to those parts where you're like, ah, I can never beat this part. Eh, next game. But it's just like, as an adult, when you just have, like, a thing of, like, I just want to try to actually beat this game finally. It's like, oh. This game is super crazy. Maybe I can't. Maybe this is going to have to remain a thing that just remains an unchecked checkbox. Huh. That's unsatisfying and frustrating as hell. I wonder if back then uh, part of the uh, uh, marketing ploy would have been to drive kids, the the youth uh, aged 8 to 12 demographic, uh, drive them towards things like Nintendo Power, where there could be tips, there could be tricks, cheat codes or whatnot, some strategies for certain games. I suppose that's definitely true. Otherwise, how the hell would you find out how to beat some of the enemies in Zelda 2? Um, you know, the proper approach for the speeder bike level in Battletoads. Yeah. Uh, there's, you can't develop muscle memory for, uh, or you can't easily develop the muscle memory approach for the speeder bike level because the walls come at you too damn fast. And if you're not getting past the first one or two, what the hell are you going to do? Yeah. Mind you, when you're that young, your hand-eye coordination is bananas, so who True. knows? Maybe... True, too. Maybe it's it's that weird trade-off of you have, like, the crazy reflexes back then, but you don't really have the discipline yet. Mm-hmm. And it's the unfortunate thing of, like, you know, you get one as you lose the other. <laughs> That's just how <laughs> it happens when you age, but, you know, huh. So, I don't know. So by the sounds of it, you are sticking with it and most likely, uh, uh, going to finish this final castle, uh, that you are now, you've gotten yourself to in Zelda 2. Yeah, I have. Oh, you have? You've beaten the game? No, I, I've got myself to the final oh, castle. Okay, yes. Yeah. But, uh, you will continue on, it sounds like, and beat this final castle, uh, come I'll, hell or high water. I'll try. I mean, I might get <laughs> to a point where, no, I guess I can't. And if that's the case, fine. But, I really don't want that to be the case. You know, it it sucks. You've come this far. Yeah. So if you do reach some sort of conclusion with Zelda 2, uh, do you have another difficult old NES game to uh, to uh, try your hand at afterward? Or 
Try no, something easier, something modern and easier. Probably something modern, something a little easier. I don't know what I have next on the docket, but um, I'll figure something out. There's a lot to choose from. Yeah. Yes, there is. That's that's part of the problems of our modern age. There's a lot to choose from. Too much to choose from. Yeah. It's a buffet, and uh, everything's tasty and delicious, but where do you start? <laughs> yes, and God forbid, if, God forbid if you've developed, you know, food allergies or <laughs> IBS or celiac or something in your... As you as you've aged too, you know, it's, uh, lactose uh, lactose issues. intolerance, yeah. Yep. So, yep, fun times. So we're old. I think uh, that's what this program has established uh, through the years. Uh, we are <laughs> yeah through the years. I mean, the program itself is getting old. So uh, it's up there. It's over fifteen. Yeah, 15 years old. <laughs> it's going to get driver's license, driver's license soon. Yeah, I mean, it's got the learner's permit already. True. So, um. Yeah. Next year. Next. <laughs> full blown license. Full blown license. Great. <laughs> Watch out the streets. Uh, I mean, we are old as I've uh, made the comment on this program many times. We are uh, men of a certain age, men of a certain distinction, but uh, certainly we are not as old as uh, the uh, subject of our first ludicrous lead off here. It is not directly video game related, uh, but it's still uh, crazy enough that it kind of ties into a theme we have seen throughout the course of this year, 2021, the year of our Dark Lord, that the collectibles market has just gone off the goddamn rails. Yeah, it's it's literally become such an untenable racket that, like, good luck if you're just looking to get into it on the ground floor. You're going to have to buy some trash, because even the trash is not cheap. Absolutely, and uh, it goes for video games, as we have seen, um, probably art, uh, but one world of collecting that has long been uh, cuckoo bananas and is a more developed market than what there is for the collectible video game market is the realm of baseball cards, and the world of baseball collecting is, or baseball card collecting, is headlined by the most precious, most revered, most expensive card out there, a Honus Wagner baseball card. Yeah. Um, they. I mean, the Honus Wagner card... Has always been. It always has been. I mean, I, I can think of, like, the Simpsons reference to it when, you know... What was it, a thing? Honus Wagner when he had... Honus Wagner when he had sideburns or something? Like, <laughs> it's like, whoa! And it's just like... I don't know anything about baseball. I don't know anything about 1950s baseball, let alone enough about baseball even back then. But yeah, I know the name Honus Wagner. And, you know, along with Mickey Mantle and maybe Babe Ruth, those are like the three cards where I know, oh, if you have one of those, you probably, it's going to be worth some money. And the Honus Wagner card in particular, uh, there's one card that I think has changed hands a few times in the last, like, 50 years, and each time it's been a lot of money, but it's set a new record. Absolutely, and the Honus Wagner card that has changed hands changed hands several times through the last 50 years, changed hands again uh, about a week or two ago, and it changed hands, set a new record again, and a new high watermark. And we're talking about this year to kind of give uh, some context and frame of reference to the crazy prices that we've seen in the video game collectibles market that has been paid. Uh, those are some high prices, but none are close to the 6.6 million U.S. dollars that were paid for this particular Honus Wagner baseball card. Now, that price apparently includes a 20% buyer's premium, but even so, 
6.6 million US dollars paid for this one particular baseball card. Yeah. So this card, for a little bit of context, in case you're not aware of the history of it, it's, it's a T206 Honus Wagner baseball card, which was from a set which was printed between 1909 and 1911, and it's not even actually fully clear on the lore of the card as they're, you know, as the, uh, the article that we saw from Dan Hajduki on, um, ESPN.com pointed out, uh, there's a disputed lore behind the early production stoppage of this card because it stopped at one point and it's not entirely clear why. Um, yeah, Honus Wagner was not a player who had a card throughout the run of those T206 uh, printings. Yeah, just for, I think, the early part, and that's it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, yeah, the, it's, TLDR, this card is basically, let's just say it's from 1909. So it's over 100 years old. It's 112 years old. That's up there. Yeah, so, which will lead me to an interest, like, just a, a, an interesting discussion point in a minute. But this card, yeah, so it's... uh Hella expensive. It is hella expensive. It's uh, it's it's always going to be hella expensive. It is the high watermark, the gold standard, if you will, for baseball cards in the world of baseball card collecting and also sports collectibles as well. Yeah, like I I mentioned Mickey Mantle before as well because I think the previous record holder for most expensive sports collectible card, um, well, not sports collectible, but card in general. Uh, was a 1952 Mickey Mantle, which was a Topps. Uh, would that have been his rookie card? It may have been. Yeah, it might have been a Mickey Mantle rookie. Don't quote me on whether it was a rookie card or not, but a Mickey Mantle from 1952 was the previous record holder um, that sold for $5.2 million uh, You know, this past January, about half a year ago, because in the last half a year, the collectible market has absolutely ballooned and gone crazy, but um, yeah, this Honus Wagner card is now the most expensive at six point six million USD, uh, which does include a twenty percent buyer's premium. In case that's a thing that you know you care about or knowing or not, but uh, yeah. So it's uh, it's a lot of money that's going around. Now, part of the rarity that is associated with this Honus Wagner card is that there's only about 60 of these cards known to be in existence, but very few of these cards ever come up for auction or come up for sale. Yeah, and very and among those very few, I think this is the one that's in the greatest condition as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I I think the interesting point to be made here is this is a card that's 112 years old. And it's going for $6.6 million. So it's had more than a century to appreciate to that value. Look at the short amount of time that some video games have had to appreciate to almost the same level of value. Yeah. the uh, It's only taken, what, 30, 35 years for those original runs of uh, uh, and very early printings of Super Mario Brothers for the NES to achieve a $2 million or almost $2 million uh, evaluation. Yeah. Even less time if we go back a couple months and look at the $1.6 million that was paid for Super Mario 64. Yeah, and that is... That's 25 years. That's only a 25-year-old game, so... 
Yeah, that, that's literally, it, it's less than a quarter of the amount of time for this thing. Now, granted, it's a sixth of the price, but if you think of like how some of these other games have appreciated so quickly as well, it's only a matter of time. Like, I think the trajectory is maybe, will it be 40 years old when it reaches this level or less? I think it might take less. Depending on how the, uh, market, uh, for collectible video games develops through the rest of this year into next year, um, because it seems like, uh, the evaluations for collectible video games are getting hyper inflated. Yeah. There could be causes behind it. We don't really know. Yeah. There's speculation that we could speculate on, but, you know, rather than just throw some wild accusations at the wall like we've seen kind of happen recently, very plausible sounding accusations, mind you. Certainly. But, you know, without, you know, we're not going to, you know, necessarily speak to those. But yeah, I mean, I can suspect that I think the video game market right now is a bit of a bubble. So, yeah. But I don't think baseball cards are a bubble. No. So if this thing is $6.6 million, I don't think it's going to be losing that value anytime soon. It's 112 years old. I mean, pretty old. It is. And it's taken that long time to get up to that point. Like we're now into like antique realm as well. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, it's now reached the stature that things like, you know, maybe Stradivarius violins might actually be at as well. So, you know, so some pieces of art or, or pottery or something like that. Yeah, exactly. So, (laughs) I mean, still, if you have the money for something like this, not a terrible investment, I don't think. No, Honus Wagner makes sense if you are going to spend it on a, something collectible. Yeah. But make sure it's like a Honus Wagner or a Mickey Mantle or, like I said, Babe Ruth or whatever. Like A, a name that has an established history or a card that has an established history of going for top dollars and really reducing the threat that it is a uh, a bubble that has suddenly cropped up. Yeah. Now... If the next time this Mickey or this uh, Honus Wagner card goes on sale is in six months' time and it's you know selling selling for twelve million dollars, something's gone wrong. Yeah, it, it, it's not going to you know should not go for such a ridiculous amount in a short time frame. Yeah, I could see six point seven seven, like S- I, seven and a half, seven and a half maybe. That's yeah. pushing it, I think. But who knows? The collectible market right now. Seems a little bit crazy. It and, is crazy. And we'll have to see what happens because people have some suspicions right now that don't seem entirely unfounded, but they're not founded fully yet. So we'll have to wait and see. Time will tell. Uh, in the meantime, again, $6.6 million paid for a Honus Wagner baseball card. Uh, the seller of the card was a, quote, East, quote, East Coast collector. Uh, the buyer... Uh, has remained anonymous, as has the seller. As you can imagine, you don't want it known publicly that A, you've got this kind of money to shell out for a Honus Wagner card, B, you now have this Honus Wagner baseball card, and C, you were the recipient of those $6.6 million by virtue of the fact that you sold the Honus Wagner baseball card. That's going to open you up to a whole host of problems if your name is out there like that. So makes sense these uh, people are remaining anonymous. But uh, So that is some frame of reference. That is some context in the grander collectible world 
out there. But that doesn't mean there aren't uh, some collectible games that are fetching impressive amounts of money that perhaps seem more in line with uh, our sensibilities as to what they're actually worth, and some of them crop up in the weirdest places as we go into our second ludicrous lead-off. News again of the Goodwill, the uh, used goods uh, uh you know, company from the United States that uh, will take in your donations, turn around and sell them, and uh, then funnel the profits into programs and organizations that do good in local communities. Yeah. Uh, they have come across another rare collectible video game and sold it for an impressive sum of money. Yeah, I'd just like to say this sum of money and this organization, this feels more like what a rare video game should go for. And this seems like the upper limit of what a rare video game should go for. And this seems more like a natural progression rather than perhaps maybe an artificial progression by maybe some rich people who are just trying to maybe make things look a little bit more <laughs> valuable than they actually are, maybe. Hmm. But... uh <laughs> All that aside, what we're talking about is a rare unopened copy of The Legend of Zelda uh, that came across the you know the bins or whatever they do for it their collection. It was a donation. It was a donation to Goodwill. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know if it was water rated or whatever else. I don't think it went to water. I no. think the uh, the Goodwill uh, group, if they have something valuable that comes through and is donated, they put it up on their own auction page. Yeah. So, And you're buying it as is, as you do with anything at the Goodwill store. Yeah, but it was a sealed copy of The Legend of Zelda, you know, the original from 1986, um, for the NES, and it received an impressive 145 bids, and it kind of, you know, jumped up. Uh, and this happened in Canada, by the way. Uh, it happened in the United States. Uh, oh, the sorry, donation, yeah. uh, actually, of this copy of Legend of Zelda. Oh, sorry, it, it came from a Canadian website, so I was Canadian just, news site, yeah, right. but it's an American story. Right. Uh, the game itself was donated to a Goodwill store in Connecticut. Ah, that's what it was, yes. Yes. Apologies. Uh, but yeah, so 145 bids on their website, and the final price that it ended up at was 411,287 United States dollars or $411,278. Both are listed. $11 difference. I'm not sure which one is which, but let's just say over $411,000. Over $411,200. Yeah. So almost 300. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of money and that's good. And I don't feel bad about you know, a company like the Goodwill making money off of this because I know they actually do put their money back into actual social programs and social good. Unlike a heritage auctions where it's literally just rich people spreading the money around to themselves and not really doing much with it. No, it's uh, simply a means of uh, the rich getting richer. Yeah. And buying a valuable uh, collectible item that can then be later sold for Profit. More yeah. money than what they paid for it. Whereas the Goodwill have said that the proceeds from this sale of the unopened Legend of Zelda game for the NES will uh, fund uh, go to fund things such as skills training and job placement programs for people with disabilities and other barriers to employment. So those are all very good, very uh, socially conscious causes that 
are going to happen thanks to the $411,000, the windfall that is now coming the way of Goodwill. So good on them. This is not a record amount for a Legend of Zelda copy. That was set this past July uh, when a copy, unsealed or still sealed copy, was sold for $870,000 at auction. Uh, that was graded as a 9.0 out of 10 by the Wata Grading Company. And I wouldn't doubt if that one actually went through the Heritage Auction site. I believe it did. So, hmm, interesting. Let's just keep an eye on this heritage auctions thing as it develops over the next few weeks, months, because I have a suspicion that none of those numbers can be trusted. They are the numbers given, and they're all we have to go by at this point. Yeah. But even so, I believe that uh, somebody paid $411,000 for this Legend of Zelda copy. Yeah. And that's a lot of scratch, but hey, good on them for paying it to the goodwill. Yeah, exactly. The, the Goodwill group, uh, who are going to use it again for good socially conscious causes in their area to, uh, uh, fund skills training and, uh, development programs for people with disabilities and other barriers to employment. Uh, and actually that concept of funding, uh, uh, programs to bring people with disabilities into the workforce and just reducing barriers, uh, to people with disabilities leads us into our first story here of uh, some actual good, socially conscious good that is happening from a for-profit company, which seems very rare these days. Yes, not just a for-profit company, but like a massive for-profit company, like one of the big guns of video games. I think it's inarguably EA. They're, they're, everyone has heard of EA games. Certainly. I mean... Whether or not, you know, if you're into video games, at some point you've played some sort of EA game, be it an EA sports game or whatever, probably an EA sports game. You've probably played Madden. Maybe you've played The Sims. Yeah, maybe you've played The Sims. Maybe you've played, like, yeah, EA is also a gigantic company that owns several other companies. So chances are you've played something by EA. EA makes shitloads of cash. They're a very big company. So they don't. You know, the old joke being like, you know, you, well, you think I got rich by writing a lot of checks, <laughs> but you know, no, like they, yeah, they, they have assets and they want to protect them and whatever else. EA makes money. So this is kind of surprising to me that they've done this, but they've freely made available five accessibility patents that they, you know, they have just to make, to make it so that you know, anyone making video games can basically use them to help people who might have, you know, deficiencies in any of their senses or have accessibility concerns enjoy the games easier. Uh, absolutely. The uh, announcement that was put out by EA earlier this week said that uh, the company was making a, quote, patents pledge. Uh, which promises to make five of its patents available for free and without repercussion to anyone who wishes to use them indefinitely, as well as future accessible technologies it develops. So these five patents can be used by anyone. They they can be used by home developers, home group developers, small studios, big studios, uh, without any sort of worry that EA's and their team of lawyers, their team of highly paid, well-funded lawyers are going to come after you for using something that is covered by their patents. Yeah, and some of these patents are actually really cool. Um, the, the biggest, most notable of the five that they're basically, I want to say open sourcing, it's not the same thing, but like letting anyone use for free, uh, if they want to take the idea and just use it in their games or whatever for free, 
with no repercussions is the uh the ping mode or the ping system from Apex Legends uh which was noted at the you know when the game came out as allowing uh players to more easily communicate with each other in the game and it was praised for making Apex a lot more accessible if you had speaking hearing or cognitive you know disabilities so that's really cool absolutely um but then other patents you know they're related to other things like like typically related more to like visual impairments be it color blindness you know limited visual impairment whatever so like uh things like you know things that let you detect and modify things like specific colors brightness and you know contrast in particular is a big one with accessibility and those are systems that are currently being used in Madden and FIFA so like they have accessibility modes built right into the games that let you modify these things to make it easier to see and it's very important if you have limited visual you know acuity to be able to do this because some of these games like people don't think about it very often but contrast is very important in terms of colors and just high contrast is very important for accessibility oh, certainly and in something like uh, a Madden game where brightness uh, it, those are very bright games. Yeah, they're bright, but they're also kind of homogenous in terms of colors. Like, it might be very hard to see players on the field who's, you know, might have, when there's a, a huddle of a bunch of players all together, it might be hard to kind of discern them from one another, or if their outfits, like the Green Bay Packers or something, mm-hmm. like, like teams that have more green in their logos or whatnot, like playing on, on field, green playing fields. on green fields, exactly. So that's not very good for contrast. Things like that. So they have ways of, you know, letting you change that and they're making it known like, hey, if any other people making any other type of game want to do this type of thing, we won't go after you for it, which is super cool. Uh, The fifth patent that uh, EA is making available is actually not being used by any current EA games, but is related to personalized sound technology, which assists players with hearing issues. And in this patent, players can create uh, or it can be used to create or modify music based on the hearing preferences of the player. So I think it's a little less clear what what that means, but... I, I think we'd understand it better if it was actually in a practical application Yeah, at this moment, but... All I can do right now is kind of just envision that it's maybe a way to turn music off or make it more muffled so that it's far easier to hear voices or whatnot. Things like that, maybe. I don't know. Uh, regardless, seems seems like it's uh, very interesting. But, like, just really cool that EA is doing this because... Yeah, accessibility is a big thing, and I think it it doesn't take a lot to sometimes put a little bit more accessible, friendly things in your games. I mean, it doesn't take a lot, and it goes a long way for helping people, helping more people enjoy it. And frankly, if you're making, if you're a company whose aim is to make money, why wouldn't you want more people enjoying your stuff? Uh, absolutely, it's true. You want as many people under your tent and being able to play and enjoy your product as possible. Uh, in addition to these patents being made available for people to use without legal repercussions, EA is also open sourcing code for colorblindness, brightness, and contrast accessibility in digital content. Uh, the code uh, for that, uh, those open sourcings, is uh, currently available on GitHub, and we have a link to the EA GitHub page on our website of the arcade show.com. So you can check that out. Uh, and good on EA. In their announcement, they say here, uh, with a statement, uh, 
uh, from Chris Bruzo, who's the executive vice president of positive play commercial and marketing for EA. He says, quote, at Electronic Arts, our mission is to inspire the world to play. We can only make that a reality if our video games are accessible to all players. Our accessibility team has long been committed to breaking down barriers within video games, but we realize that to drive meaningful change, we need to work together as an industry to do better for our players. We hope developers will make the most of these patents and encourage those who have the resources, innovation, and creativity to do as we have done by making their own pledges that put accessibility first. We welcome collaboration with others on how we can move the industry forward together. End quote. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not a game developer, but I am a developer of other things like websites and apps and stuff. And I can tell you that it's way easier to make something accessible from the ground up than it is to put accessibility in after the fact. So if you have tools like these available from the inception of your product or from your project, right from the the concept phase, right when you start implementation, that's huge. Like that makes all the difference in the world. Like it's way easier to just be like, keep that in mind of like, Oh, well how would we do this with the accessibility or why not just make it accessible for everyone then? Like just make it accessible by default. Like, might actually not be that big of a deal for people who don't require accessibility. Just a thought. Yeah. You know, accessibility should be one of the aims now on the whiteboard, the proverbial whiteboard, as teams start brain, dev teams start developing and brainstorming their aims for their projects, you know, what they want to do, what they want to convey, what points they want to hit or whatnot. And I, my sense is we're seeing a greater eye and greater thoughtfulness paid towards accessibility in the video game community. This being a, Actually, a pretty big step that EA is taking. I would not be surprised if others uh, follow suit. Uh, but going back a couple of years, uh, Microsoft released the adaptive controller for Xbox, mm-hmm. uh, which was a really unique idea. I think they were the first ones I have seen or certainly can recall taking the step of making a controller that has uh, many different inputs that can be assigned to uh, simpler, easier to use, uh, buttons, devices, something that can work for players who have, uh, different forms of, uh, you know, physical needs or perhaps, uh, inabilities or difficulties to make it work for them instead of, uh, being stuck using the standard Xbox controller. Yeah. Which was fantastic. And full credit to them because the patch, uh, I did see a video that came out at the time of, uh, an unboxing. Uh, of, I think it was Microsoft itself released it of an unboxing of the adaptive controller and it was super easy to use boxing, you know, packaging as well. You know, it wasn't an elaborate cumbersome process. So even someone who themselves experiences a physical difficulty, they could open it themselves with uh, little to no, uh, uh, trouble whatsoever. So, uh, good on them. I think the real, you know, tide we'll see in maybe in a couple of years once accessibility, as you said, is paid mind on the ground floor of these games yeah, uh, that are in development now and will be developed in the future. Well, I just, like, I think my point is, what does it hurt to make a game accessible by default? Like, will it really, will it really hamper art styles and stuff that much? Like, I've played some games and I don't really have accessibility concerns, but I've played games where it's been hard to read text and stuff just because of stupid choices. Mm-hmm. Like, why would you have, like, white text on a white background? Like, that's hard to read in general. Like, accessibility or not, that's just plain bad design. Like, things like that. Like, why Like why not keep that a little bit more top of mind? Like, 
like, I don't know. It'll just, if you make it accessible, like by default, chances are it's going to be easier, you know, like your, your heads up displays and things like that are just going to be generally easier to navigate for everyone. Right? Certainly. And if there's uh, something a bit more than uh, a design choice that needs to be made, uh, there can be, uh, you know, options that can be toggled. Yeah. Or options included for people to toggle if they so want or choose. Yeah. Exactly. It's just a little bit more thoughtfulness <laughs> that uh, I think will get us to uh, a better future of accessibility for people. But the ball seems to be rolling. We'll see what the uh, upshot is of other companies maybe taking the step and making their accessibility patents uh, available to others for use as well. So uh, yeah, good on EA. Uh, you know, we'll malign them when they're being just a horrible money grubbing company, but we we have to tip our cap to them uh, for doing something right. So uh, EA, good on you. But with that, you know, there was a. A thought in my mind when I was, you know, initially reading the headline and reading through the story where there's a little bit of an incongruity between EA, the horrible money-grubbing company, but they're actually doing something good. My brain had a little bit of trouble reconciling that. But then, having said that, though, just to even further counter that, is this truly good? Why should something like an accessibility thing be allowed to be patented in that way? Like, oh... We're patenting the concept of higher contrast colors. Can you do that? Like, really? I, I guess the, the technology that could generate those higher contrast colors. Uh, I guess so. is like maybe a visual filter or something on top mm-hmm. of a screen. Fine. But still, hmm. Uh, even so, uh, my brain did have that uh, that moment of uh, that dissonance between, well, EA is a horrible company, but they're doing something good. How do I reconcile that? Yeah. And we have another story here of uh, a company that, uh, uh, of something that maybe doesn't entirely fit, uh, uh, given the company who is doing it and is behind it. But Fortnite, uh, this week announced that they would be adding a new section, a new area, or not Fortnite, but Epic Games announced they would be adding a new section into Fortnite. There we go. <laughs> that would be honoring and uh, attempting to educate the uh, the gaming masses of Fortnite about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It's an area called March Through Time, and it's an interactive experience that uh, has been built in the game's creative mode in collaboration with Time Magazine. And specifically, this experience is recreating locations that were in Washington, D.C., where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his iconic I Have a Dream speech 58 years ago this week. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so when you explore this whole um, March Through Time section, you know, it'll let you listen to the I Have a Dream speech in full, uh, and it'll let you visit museum exhibit, uh, exhibit-like inter- areas of interest uh, with further historical detail on the U.S. civil rights movement. So I'd imagine it'd be kind of similar to going to see the civil rights section in the Smithsonian, mm-hmm. which, you know, just, just to put a little flex on there, both Mike the Legend and myself have seen that, and it was pretty cool. It's a, if you're ever in Washington, D.C., go to the Smithsonian, any Smithsonian, but uh, the, I think it's the American History Smithsonian. Yeah. Just if you're a Canadian, don't go to the whole section where they talk about the War of 1812, because it's weird. I mean, I, we burned their White House down, and they barely even talk about that. Yeah, half the half the White House got burned down in the War of 1812, which granted, it wasn't directly with Canada. We weren't an independent country yet. No, we, we were a British yeah, colony. We were a British colony, but they made it seem like, you know, 
like America totally prevailed and there was no, it's like, yeah, mm, did you? (laughs) It's not like you didn't have any. Anyways, I don't want to alienate anyone here. That's just the one weird thing. Smithsonian's are cool as hell, though. And they're free. Yeah. Like, it behooves you to visit a Smithsonian. Yeah, like, if you're in D.C. and you don't go to one of them, you've just missed out on a huge experience. They're super cool. Absolutely. Well worth your time to visit. And you will be educated. But if you can't, you know, on experiences, on, you know, great his, you know historical figures like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who actually fought for the betterment of, of oppressed peoples in American society. Uh, but if you're not able to do that through the Smithsonian or perhaps your public education is lacking and this is a, a section not in there, then Epic Games has your back. Yeah. I mean, weird, cool, but weird. Let's just hope they don't actually have Martin Luther King doing any of those goofy flossing moves or anything like that. that all the dances <laughs> that they have built into Fortnite. Oh God. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that'd be, uh, maybe a little bit like, step too far. Yeah. You, you've, um, maybe you've dishonored the man's name. You should probably not do that. <laughs> uh, I did see some screen grabs of, uh, people visiting the, this experience area in Fortnite. And on the one hand, it's a great, nice idea. On the other hand, I don't know if it works as well or as earnestly in something like Fortnite that is a cartoony shooter, where the characters and avatars people are using to visit this area, this very solemn area, uh, to to see and learn more about the legacy of a of, of a great civil rights fi- uh, figure uh, in Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The the avatars being used are walking bananas, <laughs> fish, <laughs> the xenomorph from Aliens, yeah, Rick Sanchez from Rick and Morty, yeah, great. Yeah, and, and a whole host of uh, other, you know, over-the-top characters. It it that's where the dissonance, uh, cognitive dissonance, comes in for this with me. It's uh, hey, this is a really nice solemn thing. Oh, but everyone like is dressed in Halloween costumes. What the hell am I supposed to make of this? I could see this area working best, maybe in like a Sims or something like Second Life. You know, something where people are more. Actually like people. Yeah. Well, what I could see this being really a thing that they build out a little bit more would be maybe a future Assassin's Creed game. Like where, you know, maybe if they have a game built, like some future Assassin's Creed game built around like, you know, that time in American history, then they would have one of their interactive like museum modes or whatever, Mm -hmm. like they have for the Egyptian game and all that stuff where... You actually get to travel around and learn things about the various pyramids and whatnot. This could be a thing where you actually learn about the various riots and stuff like that. And, like, here's where he gave his speech and here's – that I could see working as well or being more congruous with what we know of what games are. But, yeah, this is is very strange because Fortnite – visually, it doesn't make any sense. No, it does not. No, there's – it's a nice attempt, like the idea, and uh, – I, I like that Epic Games was uh, working with Time Magazine, who hired uh, apparently various creators to work on this mode, and they sought contributions from the Dusable Museum of African American History, as well as the estate of Martin Luther King Jr. Good on them. Uh, you can 
search out this game and find exactly where it is uh, with an island code. I'm not going to spit out the 12 digits here. Um, you can look it up. We link to the article uh, rec- about this news piece on our website, thearcadeshow.com, and uh, you can learn more there. But yeah, it's it's a neat idea. Uh, I don't know if this is just for a specific period of time, as it was added into the game just this week to honor the the 58th anniversary of uh, Martin Luther King giving his "I Have a Dream" speech uh, at the on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Yes, I, yes, it was the Lincoln Memorial. Yeah, uh, the Washington Monument is the giant obelisk. Yeah, there we go. My brain had to uh, remember correctly about those uh, monuments, which we have also visited. Yes. The Lincoln Memorial, by the way, also really cool. Lincoln himself at the memorial, huge. You never really have an idea of how huge that thing is until you're there. Yeah. It's like bananas. <laughs> and also, they're all huge. I mean, like, what was the other one? The, the Franklin Memorial? Um, Franklin Memorial? Like, I know the Washington Monument itself is huge. Oh, yeah, it's That's huge. That's the obelisk. But, but there, there was that other one. I think it was Ben Franklin... Or maybe it was Hamilton or something where they had like a statue of one of the other guys just in some other lesser frequented thing. Mm-hmm. You know, Jefferson. It was Jefferson, right, right. So like the when they joke about, you know, how Lisa Simpson, you know, visited the Jefferson Memorial and blah, blah, blah. Even that was huge. Like it was, you know, not as impressive as the Lincoln Memorial, but still like, you know, for, for a, a less significant statue, it was still like 16 feet tall. As opposed to Lincoln that was, like, 24 feet tall. Like, it was bananas. Like, I think when we walked up there, it's like, oh, we're, like, barely up to his knee. Huh. Huh. So I'm next to Lincoln's shin. Yeah. Cool. Great. (laughs) It's like, huh. Okay. Like, there's this weird comparison. You know, you kind of know and accept everything in Vegas is bigger than it needs to be. But everything for the memorials and statues in D.C. is also bigger than it needs to be, it seems. Yeah, very much so. And just an FYI, as the world slowly gets back to normal and travel uh, is a thing that uh, people may do in the future if you get to Washington, D.C., again, check out the Smithsonian, visit the memorials, the statues, everything. But be aware, everything's big. Yeah. And, and I don't know, just as another aside, I think we talked about it when we were down there for MAGFest – like a million Many years ago. Oh God, what? 10? No. I think it was probably... 2013, I think, was the last one. Yeah, I think so. That sounds about right. So, yeah, about eight years ago. Yeah. Anyways, but like, we're, we're both making the comment to each other. It's like, wow, these buildings are all very like, you know, oppressive and like, you know, reminds you of, um you know, the Ministry of Truth kind of style <laughs> thing, like 1984, like very brutalist, very strong, like... We both noticed it. I'm sure other people notice it. It doesn't feel like it's a real place. Yeah. Like the whole, the whole national park area. The, the architecture style for a lot of the government buildings feels like it's, uh, uh, the style they chose was intimidation. Yeah. To show the strength of the state. Yeah. Like very gray stone, very high walls. No windows until the very high parts of the things, like, so, mm-hmm. like, you can't see in unless, and you can only see out if you're on, like, the sixth story, basically, kind of thing. Like, wow, big, impressive, oppressive-looking buildings, like, huh. <laughs> yes, things can be both impressive and oppressive at the same time. Yeah. You'll see them in Washington, D.C. And also, too many gift shops with the same garbage in all of them. <laughs> 
Yes, uh, because so much of uh, Washington, D.C. is government-based, uh, America-based, if you will. I mean, it's the, the center and capital of the United States. So uh, their figures are all public figures. Yeah. So uh, the images uh, of presidents and uh, past historical past presidents are all in the public domain. So you can sell whatever cheap tchotchke crap you want. Yeah. And not have to worry. Yeah, I believe at the time it was all like discount stuff from like the, you know, the the Bush Cheney administration. Mm-hmm. So we saw all of these like goofy looking clocks and stuff with just pictures of George Bush in the background and stuff. Very like tacky and awful, but hey, I mean, there's no shortage of it. <laughs> if tacky and awful was your thing, then get on it. But uh but speaking of uh, cogn- tacky and awful, t- <laughs> no, not tacky and awful. Not, not this not- one. <laughs> no. uh, maybe a, a later a story or whatnot. Uh, but uh, speaking of cognitive cognitive dissonance, uh, one of the games that uh, people have been playing over the last, say, you know, few years to to really relax uh, and maybe have lower stakes gaming experiences, uh, even prior to the release of Animal Crossing's uh, Animal Crossing New Horizons, was Stardew Valley. Yeah, Stardew Valley. I mean, I've put a fair amount of time into Stardew Valley. It's there's something kind of almost meditative about playing it. I mean, yeah, there is story elements and there's things you can do. There's also fighting. There's like you know combat elements in the game if you really want to do that, but you never actually have to do anything in the game. It's just, you know, day-night cycle, season cycle. Yeah. Not real-time, thankfully. Not like Animal Crossing. Like, you can actually progress days along if you want. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, like, if you ever played a Harvest Moon game or whatever. I mean, if you've never played Stardew Valley at this point, I mean, if you like that type of thing, you should probably just try it. But if not, eh, maybe, I don't think anything's going to win you over at this point. But still... I don't think Stardew Valley is a game that you're going to think of when you think of esports, though. Certainly not, but with the announcement this week, Stardew Valley is now going to be an esport. Yeah, and I'm very confused as to how that's going to work. So this week came the announcement of something called the Stardew Valley Cup. Uh, the announcement was uh, posted on Twitter uh, by uh, the creator and developer of Stardew Valley, Eric Baroni, a.k.a. Concerned Ape. Uh, he said, I'm pleased to announce the first official Stardew Valley Cup. It's a competition of skill, knowledge, and teamwork with a prize pool of over $40,000. That's 40000 U.S. dollars. So this is not going to be your traditional eSport when you think of games that are eSports. It is not going to be a game that is played directly competitive or directly competing against uh, or between teams directly competing against one another. It's not like a, an Overwatch, a, a Counter-Strike or something like that where you have to go in, annihilate another team, and then you are declared the victor. Rather, this might be something more like golf where... It is up to you, the player, or in this case, a team of players, uh, to finish tasks in a set amount of time. Each task is assigned a point value. At the end of time, teams with the highest points will be declared the victor. Unlike golf, where you want the most points, you know, golf, you want the lowest score, you want the least points, this, you want the highest score, the most points. There's over 100 special challenges that have been uh, concocted between Eric Peroni, as well as a Stardew Valley YouTuber, YouTuber going by the name of Zach Unsurpassables, with a Z, Hartman, 
who worked with Eric Brony on this. They've come up, as I said, with over 100 special challenges uh, that will earn teams points, move you up a leaderboard. Uh, this is all going to be a timed challenge. So some of the tasks that teams will be completing include finishing the craft room. That'll get you 10 points. Uh, winning a f- an ice fishing contest, that'll get you 15. Uh, giving Pam a pale ale, which gives you 5 points. Giving a loved one at the, uh, a gift, or giving a loved gift at the feet of the Winter Star, uh, that's 25 points. Obtain a trash hat, 10 points. Uh, complete a monster eradication goal, 20 points. Reach 100, or reach level 120 in the mines, that's 10 points. So, uh, a lot of different uh, point values you can pick and choose, and one of the strategies, uh, w- will be for teams to figure out, what do you do? Do you try and use your time to rack up a whole lot of the low-point-value, easy-to-do tasks? Or do you spend your time trying to do the harder, higher-point-value tasks? Yeah, or like... And it, it's all going to come down to time management, because as someone that's put in a lot of time in this game, I know that, you know, it, it can be very easy getting stuck in one task for too long. So, <laughs> like, getting to level 120 in the mines can take you as a solo player could take you up to like an hour to do. So is it going to be worth, you know, all four of you kind of going together to just blast through and try to get down there or do you? Yeah. So I, I don't know. Very interesting. I'm intrigued. Don't know if I, you know, will bother trying to put a team together. Don't even really know exactly how it's going to work, but, uh, yeah, it's it's very cool. It, I mean, I'm interested in seeing the full challenge list anyways, so could be very interesting. Indeed. Uh, there's going to be, in addition to these challenges that have already been stated, these uh, over 100 challenges, I think it's 120 challenges in total that teams will be able to pick and choose from and acquire points from. Uh, during the actual event itself, uh, there will be random challenges dropped that... Uh, have a special, will be special challenges just that you hear of in that moment, and they'll be worth 20 points as well. So hearing that really made me think back to Supermarket Sweep, when teams would be in the grocery store at the uh, very end trying to fill their carts with as much uh, stuff and uh, ring up the highest bill as possible. Uh, the host of Supermarket Sweep would come over the PA system and say, oh, on special is this thing. If you go and get that thing with a special sticker, then like $50 gets added to your bill and will help you out at the end. Or if you find the special uh, giant piece of inflatable cheese that had a sticker at the end, that right. would add a certain point value to your I think the ones you're talking well. about there, those ones are worth 50 points each. Okay. But the, yeah, because there's going to be five of them basically where they're basically going to interject and go, oh, actually, this is the thing to do right now. So, like, the the phrase that uh, Eric Brony said, he said, um, uh, there's going to be five challenges total, and each one of them is worth 50 points, which I hope is going to tempt players away from their predetermined route and risk it for the biscuit, you know. Um, but, yeah, the the 20 points, I think, is associated to being the victor at certain uh, bigger team challenges that are not those unknown five tasks. Ah, that's right. Too. Yeah. Yes. So my apologies. No, that's all right. I mean, there, there's a lot of different points at stake here and a lot of different ways to get points. It seems so no, I'm not an expert in what you can do in the game. So by all means, I don't 
think, you know, I would be a good person to go to for whatever, but it would be a very interesting thing to watch, I'm sure, maybe highlights of, which I'm sure there's going to be a lot of on YouTube after the fact, so. Uh, certainly. This event itself actually is coming up very soon. It is set to take place Labor Day weekend on September 4th at 12 p.m. Eastern Time with Eric Brony himself, as well as Zach Unper- Unsurpassable's Hartman uh, doing... Uh, the commentating uh, over top the live stream action that will be uh, aired on both Twitch and YouTube. So, yeah, it's coming up very, very soon. So I'd imagine the teams and competitors are already in place. Yeah. It, you know, there's right. no announcement of qualifiers or anything like that. This isn't any sort of global event. Yeah. They've got their people already. Yeah, and that it's they're probably, you know, drawn from some pool of, like, somehow determined elite Stardew Valley players in whatever estimation. That's fine. I mean, probably Twitch somewhere, I would imagine. It would make the most sense to me as well, uh, or just other people. They know to be good players uh, throughout the you know previous five years of Stardew Valley being a game available to be played. So yeah. uh, certainly an intriguing thought. We'll uh, bring news of this uh, uh, Stardew Valley Cup uh to you and its winners in the uh, in the future. So, uh, forty thousand dollars is the prize pool. Uh, I don't know how it's going to be broken down, but I doubt first place is going to get all forty thousand. No, that's not usually how those prize pool type things work. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a pool, right? It would just be a grand prize of whatever and mm-hmm. whatever. But yeah, so yeah. So hey, good on uh, anyone who can win money by playing Stardew Valley. Yeah, competitively. Exactly. Yeah. Who would have ever thought that would be a thing? Yeah. Not me. Yeah. Someone who's played a lot of Stardew Valley. Just when you thought 2021 might have started making sense. No. Stardew Valley is an eSport. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but well, one last news item to get to here this week. Uh, there's no real cognitive dissonance associated with this one, but still a very interesting piece of information that uh, came down the pipeline as well, uh, in that Netflix has started to roll out free mobile games to its subscribers. Yeah, I believe we talked about, you know, this a few weeks ago on the program, just the prospect of this possibly happening, but now it's happening. Not everywhere, just in Poland. For oh, now. Of course, Poland getting all the good stuff again. <laughs> again, yeah. Poland, yes. when's it going to end? Said nobody ever. <laughs> but... I mean, except for, I guess, The Witcher before anyone else, so... uh yeah, true, they had the original novels. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, but uh, <laughs> I got nothing else to say at that point, but uh, yeah, this is, uh yeah, for some reason, Poland was the test market for this. I don't actually understand why, this makes no sense to me, but hey, Netflix and their infinite wisdom must have some reason for this. A small enough manageable uh, base of uh, subscribers? Sure. Let's go with that. Where the server demands aren't going to be uh, extraneous? I don't know. But uh, it's only a, a small handful of uh, mobile titles they've added to their entertainment library as part of this uh, Poland-exclusive uh, test. At present, the uh, test is for Android devices only and consists of two games, Stranger Things 1984 and Stranger Things 3 both of which are displayed within the Netflix app, but uh, according to officially released images, they must be downloaded through Google Play. Well, good to know that they're really you know, drawing from all of their rich array of everything that's available on Netflix from as original Netflix programming. Mm-hmm. You know, two Stranger Things games. <laughs> good. 
So if this is uh, portending what's to come, it's uh, going to be a very Stranger Things-centric uh, game lineup. Yeah. That uh, Netflix is going to be busting out there. Well, I've seen Stranger Things happen. <laughs> huh. uh, to the corner with you for yeah, that joke. Yeah, yeah, I understand. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so... No indication at all what other future titles might be in the pipeline uh, from Netflix on this or who they're working with as partners development studios. Yes. Or, I mean, who knows if this will even go well. If Poland tanks as a test market, maybe we'll never hear anything about, about this ever again. <sighs> Poland, again, ruining it for the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Always, always. Always Poland. Classic Poland. You scamp. <laughs> you scamp of a country. Oh, man. Uh, Netflix on their uh, Geekland or Geeked Twitter account uh, said, quote, it's very, very early days and we've got a lot of work to do in the months ahead. Uh, but this is the first step. Uh, of course, not included in that statement, again, is anything about uh, what might be included, such as not Stranger Things games. Uh, no indication of when, uh, when else new games might be added to the service or when the service might finally launch for realsies in, you know, normal countries, regular countries, not Poland. I mean, to be fair, Poland is a regular country. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure what regular country <laughs> means. You know, countries that aren't Poland. <laughs> I thought it was pretty self-explanatory. What you're really saying is you don't know when it's going to be in North America. Certainly. The place we're from. Yes, and where it matters to us most. Yes. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> But Netflix did confirm that all titles will be included as part of a Netflix membership and the games will be free of ads as well as in-app purchases. Uh, saying, quote, we'll keep you updated as we explore what gaming looks like on Netflix. Stay tuned. But at least good that, hey, there won't be, you know, additional ads or additional content that you'll have to pay for. Uh, yeah. In any way. So that's going on them. And again, as we said previously, this is something Netflix is looking at as a value-added uh, uh, service. Yeah, and I mean, like, as evidenced by Apple and Google also really trying to get into this whole market, it seems like everyone and their dog wants to get into the gaming market. Because I think at at everyone's heart at this point, people who are major CEOs and stuff of these massive media companies are people who are probably of our age range and stuff who probably grew up playing video games who are like, you know what, why can't we also be a video game company? Why can't we get into it as well? So, And if they're not, you know, the CEOs and uh, decision makers aren't from our age range, then they certainly are seeing that our age range, uh, you know, the people who grew up with an NES in the household from the very start, are the people with the purchasing power. Yeah. We, we have the monies now. We sure do. We've got, you know, we are into our jobs and our careers, and and so, yeah, we kind of want games because we've grown up with games. So yeah. there's a catering to that demographic in that respect. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, it'll be interesting to see where this goes. It is kind of, a, it, like you said, refreshing to see a company basically pledge to say, no, there's not going to be any extra fees and stuff associated with it. It's just part of your Netflix membership. Yeah, which uh, anything as a, a mobile-related title, there's the expectation there's going to be paid content, paid DLC, at the at bare minimum, ads, ads plenty. Yeah, like if it's one of these f typical free mobile games, you know, if they're like, you know, the match three whatever type games, every time you beat a level, you're going to have to watch some ad normally. I mean, that's just sort of like the accepted norm. Mm -hmm. If that's not the case, great. 
certainly. And uh, more, more power to Netflix. I wonder, too, uh, a thought that just kind of occurs to me, uh, if this is, as I said, a, a value, you know, value added play for Netflix, uh, is this also an attempt by Netflix to retain subscribers, uh, because we are getting now into the very fractured world of streaming services? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're ultimately at the point now where everything is kind of getting homogenous to a point or if not homogenous, then basically worse than it was with terrestrial television, where, you know, the, the quote unquote cable cutters of 10 years ago, who were just basically looking to a service like Netflix as a major reason to not have a cable subscription anymore, because why would you need that? Anything you want to watch is just on this one service. Now have to buy five or six services. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's kind of making people want to, I don't want to say go back to watching traditional television, but it's making people maybe reconsider their approach to procuring media, perhaps. Uh, certainly, and instead of, uh, and maybe making purchasing decisions too, instead of, uh, going with, you know, three, four, five different streaming services, cutting it down, one or two. Yeah, one or two, like, what am I really watching right now? And that's the other thing, because they're just, kind of ephemeral services that you can dip in and out of whenever you want, chances are, you know, you might have a Netflix membership for a couple of months, drop it off, and then, you know, you're on to, here in America, maybe Hulu or Paramount Plus or Disney Plus or whatever. Mm-hmm. Peacock. Or Peacock, whatever, yeah. In Canada, you might just, or I guess also in America, Prime or... Amazon Prime. Uh, Canada, we have Crave here. Yeah, we have Crave as well, you know, and that's amongst, you know, other... Uh, various networks have their own apps and or streaming services that you can also sign up to. So yeah, it's, it's chances are like if net Netflix must know this and Netflix would be, you know, the best people to know and have analytics of churn rates and stuff like that too. So they can just kind of tell of like, Oh, how often do people, you know, drop out and drop in and drop out and like how long, long do they hang out for? And, what are some of the things that we put out that looks like it makes them stay around longer and things like that. So maybe video games will be another thing to just kind of keep people hooked. So, And if they're not seeing that now, perhaps this is uh, uh, Netflix uh, trying to get ahead of things. Yeah. Uh, anticipating, you know, that, that churn rate and people just dropping off the service because they're just going to stick with Disney Plus as their one main streaming service or whatnot. Uh, to... Add something else that Disney Plus is not offering right now and doesn't really have the prospect of offering. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, getting ahead of the curve of things, which Netflix can do because they have a lot of money. Yeah. They're a very well-funded company. They're super well-funded. They have all the resources in the world. I mean, if they didn't have a game development studio, they could probably just buy one. The crazy thing to think of uh, in the streaming world, though, is that Netflix Netflix is kind of the uh, smaller banana of the major companies. They're just the streaming and entertainment company. They don't have the additional, you know, theme parks or, or big movie deals or whatnot that, say, Disney can bring in. They don't have the whole technology side and uh, retail side that Amazon brings. Yeah, but it, they're in an interesting position because they are the disruptive company that started all of this. Mm-hmm. So they were the trendsetters who are now being copied. Yeah. And they have the same brand recognition as some of these other companies. Frankly, in this day and age, everyone knows what Netflix is. Certainly. So yeah, 
it'll be very interesting to see what happens with this. I mean, <laughs> we also might just see it totally tank in this Polish test market, and who knows? So, yeah. If anything, if it doesn't work, well, blame Poland. <laughs> you know, if we here in North America don't get these two Stranger Things-related uh, mobile games uh, from Netflix for free with your Netflix uh, membership, blame Poland. Yeah, it's Poland's fault. Always has been, always will be. <laughs> or it will be Poland's fault. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, moving on to the last segment of the show, which you've, if you've been listening to this program for any length of time, you'll know is always the blast from the past, which is always the uh, moment in time when we uh, decide to fet some things celebrating milestone an- anniversaries. They can be uh, really anything we wish to talk about that are marking milestone anniversaries. They can be movies, TV shows, video games, musical albums. But uh, this week we have uh, one video game and one TV series to talk about. The video game is the younger of the two, as it's uh, celebrating a 15th anniversary. The TV show uh, is the older of the two, uh, as it's taking us back uh, to its last episode that aired in 1996. Uh, but where would you like to start this week? We might as well start with the video game. All right. The video game uh, was released for the Xbox 360 on August 29th, 2006. It was the first game in a franchise that... Uh, very much at the time seemed like it was uh, being a copycat of another very popular franchise, but kind of went off and had a lot of fun with uh, what it was doing as well, and at times was taking the piss out of things from the major franchise. I'm speaking of the first Saints Row game. Yeah, so Saints Row, let's just be real, it's basically a ripoff of Grand Theft Auto. Absolutely. Like, from Grand Theft Auto 3 forward... Saints Row is sort of a ripoff of that. I mean, it. having said that, though, Grand Theft Auto, while it had a little bit of a sense of humor at times, it still took itself relatively seriously. Saints Row is recognized... The thing about Saints Row, right from the first one, is it always recognized how ridiculous the concept of basically all of these games are, where, you know... Is it reasonable to just be able to walk up to any car and rip the person out and steal it and drive around and that's it? And how ludicrous is it of you just a, like some car thief are now going on crazy missions with like all these bananas, mobsters and sometimes politicians and et cetera, et cetera. Like, why is this escalating so much? Why am I able to do, why do I know so many people? <laughs> I'm just some generic taxi driver, essentially. What is this? But, yeah, and Saints Row recognized the ridiculousness of all this and kind of took it to the logical extremes that, you know, you could possibly think a game like this would go in. Uh, certainly. Uh, and even in subsequent games, Saints Row 2, Saints Row 3, and then even into Saints Row 4 and some of the DLC packs, just went absolutely off the goddamn rails. Yeah. Uh, bringing, bringing in elements of, uh, aliens, alien invasions, and I think that was a storyline in the third Saints Row game, and, uh, battles between heaven and hell, which I think was in the fourth game, if not a, uh, a DLC pack for the fourth game. Well, I just remember the third one the most, cause, it, you know, I, I didn't really play much of the first couple, cause, admittedly, I just thought they were just ripoffs of Grand Theft Auto, but the third one is really where it kind of found its legs, as like, no, we're, the silly cousin of Grand Theft Auto, the game starts off, you're falling out of an airplane (laughs) and you have to beat up people in the air. That's the intro of the game. It's basically like the climax scene from the movie Crank, but it's how you start the game. (laughs) 
So it sets this bananas tone for what the game's going to be. And then you're like, you can't help but just kind of laugh and go, oh, what am I getting myself into? This is not just a Grand Theft Auto clone anymore. It It's like, yeah, I'm a crazy person. Look at me. Woo! So, yeah. But anyways, yeah. So it's interesting that, yeah, Saints Row is now... The first one is 15 years old. 15 years old, and uh, I think it's uh, perhaps then no surprise that this week uh, it was revealed that there's a new Saints Row game in development simply titled Saints Row. It's a reboot of the Saints Row franchise, which has been dormant for several years now. Uh, and I, from what I've seen of the trailer, it seems like it's maybe not uh, retaining all of the silly, fun elements of the first several Saints Row games. Uh, that was certainly a reaction uh, that many people had online to the trailer that was released as part of the Gamescom conference in uh, Cologne, Germany. But we'll see where it goes. This was only an initial announcement trailer. Uh, full gameplay details have not been released. Uh, yada yada yada. Take everything with a grain of salt. But uh, Saints Row, if you're if you want to feel old, fifteen years old. <laughs> yeah. But um... if you want to feel even older. Let's go back and uh, fet the uh, 25th anniversary of the end of uh, this TV series that uh, certainly you and I both watched many, many times growing up. Oh, yeah. It's a series that ran for seven years on CBS and starred a great Canadian in William Shatner. It's a TV series that uh, was so dramatically called Rescue 911. Yes, it was hosted by, you know, the Shat himself. The Shat Man. The Shat Man, as people here know, call him on this here. program. Yeah. <laughs> people in the arcade show.com call him. Yes. Uh, uh, people named Mike and Dennis call him regularly <laughs> to his face. Yeah. Well, yeah. We're on close personal contact with Mr. Shatner. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not true. Um, <laughs> hey, but, uh, Billy Shat. How's it cracking? Hey, B Shats. <laughs> no, we. We we don't know William Shatner, but he is like an iconic person, and you know we've grew up watching him and stuff. In no small part due to, I mean, if not Star Trek, then this show for sure. This well, was the original series was long since off the air when we were growing up and watching television. Yeah, well, I mean, it it did premiere. We would have been alive during when it was on, like it premiered in eighty nine. But you know, my time of remembering television would have been you know. Or actually, maybe it wasn't its original run. Well, I, I was more referencing uh, uh, William Shatner's uh, run on Star Trek oh, Star with the Trek, original yeah. series. No, sorry, I, yeah. I, I meant Rescue 911. Like, I remember watching Rescue 911 as a child. I don't, like, Star Trek was from the no. 60s. Yeah. I was born in the mid-80s, I don't know. But <laughs> Rescue 911, for sure, like, it was, I don't really know if they have shows like this anymore. To the same degree that they used to. It's a very 90s genre to me. The whole, I I guess they call them docudramas, Mm -hmm. where they were essentially telling a documentary-style real story, but not showing any real footage. It was all dramatization recreations by actors, just recreating these dramatic events that happened. And you know, the host of the show would then also progress, you know, move things along with narration and voiceover. Yeah, yeah, it would like before kind of commercial. It would always cut back to William Shatner, and he would talk about, oh, and then this would happen, and then they had to call the fire department and things like that. Whatever the ridiculous case, 
Rescue 911, I think, is the most prevalent of those ones in my head because I think it's the one I watched the most of when I was a kid because it was just, there was, it was on all the time. Uh, this and Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah, Unsolved Mysteries as well was definitely another one. Uh, the Rescue yeah. I don't know, like, Unsolved Mysteries felt less real and more just kind of, like, dipping into, like, the unknown and occult, whereas this one felt definitely more rooted in reality. Mm-hmm. Because, well, the conceit of the show is that it's, they, they take real 911 calls and basically recreate the dramatic events that would happen during these 911 calls. And you would get- And present it to, and the, present viewer, and to the viewer, and that's the show. That's the whole show. Which, you know, in a way, sounds like, wait, isn't that a little bit of an invasion of privacy? And yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I damned if it wasn't, like, super entertaining. I mean, you have to get uh, consent from the people uh, who had the experience, because oftentimes, as part of the, the segment telling, you know, with that uh, particular uh, 911 phone call, you'd have the people telling, you know, the vi- you know victims or participants uh, telling their side of things, what happened, uh, you know, uh, maybe it's a, a mother who... You know, had a son that son that was you know stung by a bee or something, and a dramatic rescue there or something. Yeah, you know? or a child who had to call nine one one because their parent or grandparent babysitter passed out or something. Yeah, the one that I actually remember the most though was, I think it was a like basically like a little girl who was babysitting her young brother, like the girl herself. I think was supposed to be like twelve, and her brother was like eight or something like that. And she was basically calling 911 in a panic because her brother <laughs> climbed into their freezer and got his tongue stuck to the bottom of the freezer, <laughs> like a chest freezer. And this poor kid is just like freaking out and blah, blah, blah. And the, the 911 operator was basically like, you know, trying to keep them calm and stuff. And like, you know, they weren't in any real super da- immediate danger, but it's like, that sad thing of like, oh, that poor kid. <laughs> so I think eventually, like, they got it resolved, but it was like this thing of like, the girl having to go carefully get like a, you know, a hot but not too hot thing of water and like passing it to him and him trying to figure out how to like pour it slightly and blah, blah, blah. And it was just like this ridiculous calamity where you're just like, I mean, obviously all of us Canadian kids are like, oh, you stupid idiot, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you never, didn't you ever get your tongue stuck to a pole or whatever kind of thing like that? Like, but then you, you probably think it's like, oh, maybe they're somewhere in the States, like deep South or something where maybe they don't have snow. Like, fair enough. But yeah. Or it's just a dumb kid doing a dumb thing because they're yeah, dumb. Because, yeah. Kids they're a dumb that. kid. <laughs> Every kid has done dumb things like that. You're a liar if you yourself say about yourself that you've never done anything dumb. Everyone's done some dumb things like that. So whatever. But yeah. That's just the one I remember the most. I don't know, like... Well, I remember it being on regularly. I remember it being, like, a Friday night show, but it also moved around a lot. But uh I remember it just one of those things where you can easily pick it up. Uh You don't have to be invested in it. It's just... Inter- it was entertainment. You know, enjoyable, passive entertainment. Yeah. Oh, I, I guess another one that I, th- that I can think of a comparison to is, like... America's Most Wanted was another show that was also mm-hmm. kind of in the same vein, but I never really liked it because it was just always like, this is a real criminal who's at large, and if you have any information, blah, blah, blah. It's like, that's not super great for a kid to watch, whereas this is like, this is a resolved one-shot story that's going to be done in the next 15 minutes because they do four calls a show or whatever. So, okay. 
we just get to learn about this thing, and because they're airing it, chances are the people are all fine and whatever, so... Yeah, you don't necessarily want to include a story in a 911 call where there was a negative outcome. Yeah, like shots fired, two officers dead, like, great, no one's... Like, that's not really great family entertainment, right? No, that's an HBO series. Yeah. Not not basic cable CBS style. Uh, you wouldn't have uh, William Shatner hosted, which seems weird to have William Shatner hosted. But if you believe the Wikipedia page, uh, it's because he previously played T.J. Hooker, a cop, <laughs> that gave him the the bona fides to host this nine one one show. <laughs> well, I mean, he's had such a weird, varied career. Yeah, people think of him as James Kirk. But he also played a lawyer for a long time in Boston Legal. He did. He also played T.J. Hooker, a cop, for a long time as well. So starship captain, cop, lawyer, those aren't really similar careers. No, not not at all. There's no parallels to them whatsoever. But uh, another point I want to make about Rescue 911, in its heyday, so big was its popularity, it actually got its own licensed and branded pinball table. <laughs> Which actually I've played several times. It's an enjoyable table that actually had a fully op- well, not fully operational. It's a it's a pinball and on your playfield. But there'd be a small model toy helicopter that would come up from the top left of the playfield, and if you got your ball in a certain location, would come rescue your ball uh, and take it back to the hospital or whatnot, and your ball would come down. And uh, yeah. There was no Unsolved Mysteries pinball table. No. Just going to throw that out there. <laughs> Though, interestingly enough, a thing I didn't know about Rescue 911, like maybe we didn't see the specials or maybe I just missed them or whatever because we lived through the time when, you know, sometimes it was possible to miss stuff on television and just not know about it. And it would be lost forever. Yeah. You just wouldn't know forever. Yeah, until, you know, years later when the dearth of information that all of humanity has ever created becomes immediately available and to your fingertips, you know, mm. thanks to the internet. We didn't live in that time originally, but, uh, there were two specials made one called 100 lives saved and another one called 200 lives saved, uh, where it was dedicated to various viewers who had written to CBS with their stories on how the knowledge that they obtained through watching rescue 911 allowed them to save the life of someone else. Interesting. And then apparently, at, like what, if Wikipedia again is to be believed, they say that at least 350 lives have been saved as a result of what viewers learned from watching. And even though the show was not intended to be educational, it kind of served an educational, as an educational thing, mm-hmm. which is crazy. It's, cool, but it's crazy. Certainly wild to believe. Uh, I know even watching uh, some later, maybe last uh, uh, Throws era episodes of uh, Mythbusters, uh, they had some viewers basically write in and say that because of experiments you did on the show, particularly with one example of uh, a car going underwater uh, and what they learned doing that, I believe there was a woman who was able to save herself and her young daughter after their car you know, veered off the road and went into a creek. Hmm. And, and, you know, re, you know, remembered you have to wait until the car is fully submerged before you get out. You know, the pressure equalizes inside and outside the yeah, car. Yeah, exactly. It makes sense. Then you'll be able to easily open the door. Yeah. Yeah. And then get yourself out. So, uh, but yeah, 911, rescue 911. I'm surprised we don't see either a new version of it or some sort of streaming service hasn't done something in this vein again. Yeah. I'm also 
Well, maybe that's just a sign of the times, though. Like, like I said, I don't really know of too many shows out there right now that are of this style. I mean, podcasts are the closest thing, I think, that might do this, but they're not really recreating anything. Like, true crime is the closest thing I can think of, but those are just people recounting true crimes and talking about them and maybe talking to experts about, you know, their speculations on unsolved crimes and things like that. It, like... I don't know if this type of format is viable anymore. Like, are people interested in that type? Like, at the height of when this show was out, though, everyone loved these types of programs, so I'm kind of surprised that there's not a popular docudrama-style thing out there right now. Uh, Certainly, and you'd think it uh, would be an avenue that uh, television producers or content producers for a streaming service, you know, HBO Max, Paramount+, Plus. Peacock, you know, swing a cat and pick one, uh, would go back to given the popularity of true crime podcasts. Yeah. Some of which are now bleeding into and becoming true crime episodic content. Yeah, exactly. For for a television or streaming service. Like Unsolved Mysteries has come back to Netflix, you know, in a limited series fashion, I think four episodes at a pop. In no small part because of the popularity of true crime, you know, murder podcasts. Yeah, and the also, again, people of our generation who grew up watching the original show, who have fond memories of it and are just kind of curious, well, wait, why isn't there, in, you know, more of that? And if anything, the, the bent for the, uh, for Rescue 911 could be, maybe don't go in the dark, gritty, true crime, you know, vein, but, you know, the, the upbeat, more hopeful vein, because everyone makes it out okay at the end. Like, yeah. there can be a wholesome, feel-good element to it. Yeah. Now, granted, like, we all know that, <laughs> you know, not all 911 calls end happy. No. But, yeah, we don't. But the show doesn't have to focus on the bad, right? You go through your news feed or, or watch the six o'clock news or, you know, whatever. Just You're, doom scroll a little, yeah. Yeah, it's easy to doom scroll, but maybe, you know, some uplifting positive content. Yeah. Just a thought. Yeah, that'd be my approach to it, but also I am not a, a an executive producer in charge of uh, the new version of Rescue 911. Yeah, which... <laughs> Nor am I going to be anytime soon. No. Uh, but if you are out there listening and have your own favorite, uh, 911 story or rescue 911 story, uh, you know, segment from the show that you remember and has stuck with you as the kid getting his tongue stuck to the freezer has stuck with Dennis, which in the grand scheme of things is a silly and lame 911 call. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like it's not great. Like, and that got turned into a segment on the show. Yeah. Like if you think about it. Would that make for good TV now? I don't know, but it's been a thing I've remembered for the last 30 years for some <laughs> stupid reason. Uh, if you have uh, a memory of the show that has stuck uh, to you like glue for the last 30 years, let us know. You can email us info at the arcade show dot com or hit us up and let us know through social media. Uh, we're on Twitter. We're on Facebook at the arcade show on both of those platforms. Uh, and if you have questions, comments, concerns, or uh, queries about anything else on this program or uh, anything else, really. I mean, if it's uh, in general life related, we'll uh, we'll see what we, we can do to try try and help you out there. Uh, you can get a hold of us through those means. Uh, as we said, you can email us info at the arcade show dot com. And uh, if you haven't done so already, treat yourself and make your life just a little bit easier. Uh, subscribe to our program on both iTunes 
on Google Play. Uh, we are on both those platforms and find our link, uh, or the link to our page on both of those platforms right there on the, uh, easily accessible on the homepage of this show, which is thearcadeshow.com. And normally I would say right now that we will join you again next week, but we won't. Uh, we'll be away because it's Labor Day weekend, uh, at the start of September and, uh, we will be away off enjoying that and, uh, uh, relaxing from our labors. Uh, both uh, professional and personal, such as this podcast is, you know, it's it's good to get away every so often, relax yes. and recharge. Yes. After we just uh, did two episodes and uh, had a week off prior to that, <laughs> yeah, because of scheduling conflicts. <laughs> Whew. Yeah. Though to be fair, this is not our job. <laughs> it's not. We are well, not professional podcasters. No, we we have real jobs. We just do this because it's fun. And yeah, we're open to being paid as professional podcasters, but uh, that's a negotiation that would have to take place. Uh, and uh, if you are out there and want to make us a professional podcaster, we're listening. Yes, we're listening. To quote one of the great original professional podcasters, who used to be called radio personalities, I believe. Uh, yes. <laughs> but uh, yes. Hello, Seattle. I'm listening. <laughs> yes, that's a good Fraser Crate impression. Thank you. Yes. I didn't even uh, attempt it beforehand. It it comes naturally. So uh I I am I have a natural air of pompacity to me. Perfect. On that note, uh, we'll join you again later into September. Uh but uh between now and then we hope you have an enjoyable Labor Day weekend. Uh stay safe, stay healthy, uh follow and abide by whatever restrictions your local health agency is uh putting in place for your district, uh, your situations at the time, we here uh, will be enjoying our vaccinated freedoms. Yes, exactly. And fooey on anyone who says that uh, we're giving up freedoms by being vaccinated. To hell yeah. with all those people. Yeah. Yeah, let's push them into the river. Yeah, well, seems like I have the freedom now. Hmm. Yeah. Small price to pay, you know. For getting a shot that will keep me healthy. Yeah, and keep all of my loved ones healthy. Interesting. Huh. Nuts. Yeah. Hate when that happens. But to all the unvaccinated out there, take a hike. To everyone else uh, who is right-thinking, right-minded, and vaccinated and listening to this program, we thank you for listening. Hope you will join us again next time. And until next time, good night, everybody. Good night. (laughs) 